Good morning and welcome. Good morning and welcome to House C Production Gospel. We are on Blog Talk Radio this morning with the National Association of Prison Reform update on Curtis Joel Smith serving life uh, without parole with with uh, special guest Dr. Michael McCorvey, who's going to be calling in here soon. National Association of Prison Reform update with special guest Dr. Michael McCorvey and calling guests to discuss prison reform and the situation with Curtis George Smith. Uh, the time is 10 a.m. I'm your host, Freddie C. Howard, and uh, we're going to be talking about prison reform and uh, Curtis George Smith. Um, Guest call-in number is 563-999-3554. It's at the House of Radio for the National Association of Black Defenders Incorporated, located at 1629 K Street, Northwest 300 Washington, D.C., area code 2006. Grant information, you can call at 561-301-4494. The physical address that you can write to if you need information is 66 West Flager Street, Ninth Fort, Miami Beach, Florida, 33130. The National Association of Black Defenders legal line is 561-581-1545. All right. We hope that uh, you will be calling in. I'm waiting for some of the guests to call in. Uh, Dr. Michael McCorvey, in particular, in regards to the situation with uh, the young man, Curtis Joel Smith. He's uh, serving uh, life for uncommitted crimes. Um, He's in Columbus, Georgia. And we hope that um, we will begin some callers here on this uh, broadcast. We're just underway. Uh, We're on for an hour this morning. And we hope that you will be calling us. We hope that you'll be calling us here on the Internet radio. The call-in number is 563-563. If you want to call in, 563-99-3554. Give us a call and talk about form. If you've got somebody that's in um, prison, and they are not guilty of the crime that uh, that was committed. Uh, we were busy yesterday uh, trying to get people to call in to uh, Governor Schitt from Oklahoma uh, to follow the pardon the parole recommendations of of, of clemency for for. Julius uh, Jones, and we hope that uh, you are calling that number. You can call the governor at 405-521-2342. Give him a call. Uh, if you would uh, like to give the governor a call, uh, we want to talk to you briefly about um, voting. You know that um, there is uh, about 17, 18, 19 states across America that is uh, doing things to prevent people from voting, absolutely preventing from voting, preventing from voting, 
uh, slow down the, the registration process, uh, make it more difficult to get to the polls, uh, all kinds of different things, stumbling blocks thrown in the way. And I call it stumbling blocks for a reason, because to tell you the truth, uh, the, the, uh, there is nothing that anybody can do to prevent you, prevent you from voting. All you have to do is register. We got a caller on the line. Okay, let's let him in. Good morning. Good morning and welcome. Welcome. Welcome to House Eve Production Gospel. We are talking about uh, Curtis Joel Smith this morning out of Columbus, Georgia, serving life for uncommitted crime. How you doing this morning? Five zero five two two. Hello? 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 I got a call on the line, but they're not talking. I guess they want to listen. The National Association, but anyway, we were talking about voting uh, prior to um, getting to um, the current subject, which is Curtis Joel Smith uh, out of Columbus, Georgia, serving life. Uh, for uncommitted crime. Uh, Dr. McCorber will be on here then. We thank you to guests, whoever they are, at 984-465-0522. Uh, 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 we hope that uh, you was, if you want to speak, you are free to speak. Your mic is open, and you can talk if you like to. All right. National prison reform. Now, so far as uh, people voting, all you have to do is register, get up off your desk, and go vote. That's just all to it. Can nobody stop you from voting? They can put all the laws and whatever they're going to in place. If you register and you are properly registered and know your precinct where you need to vote, get up off your desk and go vote. Now, if you want to know what's going on in your area, so if you want to vote, you can type type in on any search engine 411.org, 411.org, and type in your zip code. They will tell you who's running what public offices are being run, and what offices are open. Give them a call. We're on the air right now with National Association Prison Reform Update with special guest Dr. Mike McCarver and calling guests on prison reform. Uh, I'm your host, Freddie Howard, uh, with the National Association of Black Defenders. Uh, you can call in at 563-993-554 as if you would like to talk. We are going to go to our computer we are on our cell phone because our computer has been acting up, has been acting up. And uh, we uh, have one caller on. We're going to go to the studio. If the uh, computer uh, will allow us to uh, click on to that. Let's see, that's the problem that we've been having here lately with our uh, radio station is our computer has not been doing what it ought to do, and it's been slow. Well, we're going to continue to try to get it uh, working. But we are on the cell phone with a caller now at 984-465. We thank you for calling. And if you would like to talk, you can talk because your mic is open. Your mic is open. All right. Let us go to... Let's go to the studio. 
computer. And we'll be on the computer as well as the cell phone. As the computer indicates, may, may be connecting. We hope that you will call in. If you want to call in, you can. And talk about um, prison reform. Uh, National Association of Black Descendants Prison Reform, our baby cutter, George Smith, serving life uh, for uncommitted crimes is our headline. What if you know somebody that's in um, prison and you know that uh, call the 984 has dropped, okay? We're sorry you had to go. That's your choice. But anyway, we are talking about prison reform, and we hope that um, you are aware of the situation of incarceration in this country. What do you think about the case in which uh, a young man, that 17-year-old young man, came to a uh, event there in a part of America, traveled all the way down there with an assault rifle with 30 rounds in it, 17 years old now. He like he coming down there like he gonna do something. Man, I don't understand that. How how a 17 year old have that kind of mind to be talking about coming down somewhere and going to protect some community? Hell, he ought to be there protecting his own community. He already had his mother at home playing games or studying for school or whatever. I wonder was he in high school anyway? Anyway, anyway. Uh, we had a caller. We're just going to write down that number. Uh, drop callers, C-A-L-L-E-R-S. Drop callers at uh, the telephone. His area code is 984-984-465-0522-0522. We don't know what his problem was or why he dropped off. He wouldn't talk when we asked him to speak on the radio. Uh, but the, the line is open. And if you want to call in talking about prison reform, give us a call, 563-999-3554. Call us at 484-465-0522. If you uh, want to talk, you can give us a call. You can give us a call if you like. Please give us a call. We're waiting for your call for you to talk about prison reform. Now, Julius Jones, we have uh, been trying to get the word out. Now, he has, uh, today is the 12th. He's got six more days because they set an execution date for him on November the 18th. That's six more days from now. Six days from now. Uh, that means in six days the state of Oklahoma is going to be executing Julius Jones if the governor does not make a decision. The governor decision has a he can go ahead and execute uh, Julius Jones or he can look into his not somebody other state but the Oklahoma state pardon and parole board who voted to commute his sentence. They voted to commute his sentence. Now, if he don't want to do that, that's up to the government. That's between him and God. If he got something 
that he is so sure or that that man is innocent and it should be executed, so be it. But uh, his pardon and parole board, in the first time in history of the criminal justice system there in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma, gave him a clemency, and he is on death row. First time in history. That's powerful, powerful move there. That deserves uh, somebody paying attention to that. I mean, pay attention to it because he uh, 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 was uh, on death row and, and over, over the years of the penal system of the Oklahoma system had never, had never uh, commuted a, a, a person's sentence. That's, 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 that's some powerful stuff there. And uh, we, uh, we hope that the governor will listen. Now, there have been over 7 million, that includes my signature as well, uh, asking for clemency, uh, asking for him to be released, for him to, uh, to uh, um, let him go home, do your sons, convicted of a crime uh, that others say, and the evidence showed that somebody else did it, and they put it on, 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 uh, on Julius. Uh, he did not commit the crime. We are uh, going to go down and uh, uh, go ahead and uh, play some music if nobody calls in here. Uh, I don't know what's going on with Dr. McCorvey or uh, any of the people that's supposed to be a part of this broadcast, but uh, we are we are here. Like we said, we we're going to be here. I don't know what's taking place with, with them, but I'm doing my part. Um, okay, uh, we're going to go to uh, find something that we can play right quick. Uh, mm, hey, Jazz Mickles, Billy Jean, Ain't No Sunshine. Uh, let's see. Just trying to find something to play. Uh, just trying to find something to play. You stay with Grab your cell phones, get your computer, take out your tablet, and go to https forward slash www.spreaker.com forward slash user forward slash by faith along radio and listen to the best in Southern gospel, praise and worship gospel, contemporary gospel, bluegrass gospel with your host, evangelist Carlton Bobbert. All right, we're still here, we're waiting for our callers to call in. Uh, if nobody called in, we're going to go ahead and play some more music, uh, some of the audio clips that we got here. If nobody calls in, we'll play music or whatever. If somebody calls, radio got to play when you're ready. Party, that's the Rance Allen group. Uh, let's hit that for a minute. You may as well stay down here.
Hello, how you doing? Hello. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, it's pretty hard with the House uh, Radio. You calling about the um, Curtis Joel Smith case? Yes. Um, okay. Just, I thought we you were actually supposed to do it. So what now? That caller just dropped off. I don't know what uh, the problem was. I'm going to write that number down, 714-476-476-9609-9609. Anyway, we're still on. And uh, we're going to go ahead and play some more music. Um, we are supposed to be talking about, uh, call is supposed to be talking about um, Curtis Joel Smith there in Columbus, Georgia. And uh, we're going to go ahead and play some more music. Um, and uh, hope that uh, someone will call in. We're going to go ahead and play a little bit of a, a jazz mix.
forgot. That was uh Uh, of the recorded time, so I hope you call in. 
If you need legal services from the National Association of Black Defenders, you can call 561-581-1545. To follow this broadcast, let's go to uh, House Production Gospel, Blog Talk Radio on the Internet, uh, on Facebook. We left a link on everywhere for you to follow. Yesterday, we had a very productive broadcast, even though we didn't get a response, but we did talk for a whole hour and a minute or so. Okay, I got a call calling in. Got a call calling. Okay, we're back live. We're reconnected. We hope that uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, play some more music. Apparently, I got the time wrong. National Association of Black Children of Prison Reform update cut his jaws since seven life weeks. Um, We will continue here in a minute. Alabama voting rights. Jerry Johnson, Alabama spirit is worthy of peace. Uh, we decided to find some music. We're going to go ahead and do an intro for the broadcast just in case.
Put not your trust in princes, nor in the sons of men in whom there is no help. His breath goes forth, he returneth to his earth, and that very day his thoughts are cursed. Happy is he that has the God of Jacob for his help, whose help is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that that's therein, which keepeth truth forever, which executed judgments for the oppressed, which giveth food for the hungry. The Lord looses the prisoner. The Lord opened the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises them that are bowed down. The Lord loveth the righteous. The Lord preserveth the stranger. He relieveth the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked, he turneth upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Even thy God, O Zion, unto all generations, praise you the Lord. Gospel Blog Talk Radio. All right. Um, we are trying to get on another song here for you as we um, made a mistake in the time, apparently. That's the Association of Black Defenders Prison Reform Update Curtis Joel Smith serving life uh, without parole for uncommitted crimes. Uh, let us continue. I had to get something on, but uh, apparently it's not working. Brother, brother. 
The Golden Crowns walk out in Jesus' name on House of Gospel, Blog Talk Radio.
Welcome to the Center for Civil and Human Rights. My name is Nicole Moore, and I'm the Manager of Education here. At the Center for Civil and Human Rights, it's our mission to empower you to take the protection of every human's rights personally. And so we do that by telling the stories of the American Civil Rights Movement and tying it with the global human rights movement. At the Center, we have three unique gallery experiences. And on our very first floor, you have Voice to the Voiceless, the Morehouse College Martin Luther King Jr. Collection. In this space, it rotates every three or four months, and what you'll be able to experience are the actual papers and documents of Dr. King. So you're gonna see his books, letters, telegraphs, outlines of his speeches, and this is one of the few places in the world that you're gonna actually see his original papers. Coming up to our second floor, which is our main floor, you're gonna see Rolls Down Like Water, the American Civil Rights Movement. And this gallery brings you through in 1954, so you start to see a segregated Atlanta, and you're gonna go all the way until April of 1968 with the assassination of Dr. King in Memphis, Tennessee. When students walk into the space, what you're gonna notice immediately is that you're going to see the segregationists and you're gonna hear their voices. But we not only focus on the segregation, we also look at how African-American communities thrived in this environment. And so you're gonna see the institutions in Atlanta that made Atlanta great. You're gonna take a look at Sweet Auburn and you're gonna see the Royal Peacock. You're gonna see colleges like Morehouse and Spelman. So you're gonna see how these communities were able to stay successful when basically the odds are stacked against them. And then coming into our second portion, which is the movement catches fire. And what you're gonna see then is you're gonna meet individuals like Ruby Bridges, the six-year-old who integrated her school in Louisiana. You're gonna see Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. One of the most emotional yet important pieces, I think, of the center is our sit-in counters. Visitors are invited to sit at the lunch counter and go through a simulation of what it would have been like to actually sit and hear the torments and the taunts and understand that nonviolence was not passive-aggressive. So you get to experience just a small portion of what they would have experienced. And you get to ask yourself, could I have done it? But the one thing that really brings people together is when they come into the space that we're in right now, which is the March on Washington. And in August 1963, over 250,000 people, black, white, Latino, Asian, they all descended upon Washington, D.C. to fight for jobs and freedom. And it was the largest peaceful protest held in our country at that time. Many of you guys know the March on Washington for Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. But here you're gonna learn about A. Philip Randolph and Dorothy Height and Bayard Rustin, the organizers of the events. They had a list of demands that they presented. And they had various speakers so that everybody could understand that we can have a peaceful protest. And all we want is jobs and freedom and equality in that. In Spark of Conviction, the global human rights movement, you're going to take the experiences that you learned during the American Civil Rights Movement, and you're going to understand that these issues aren't just in the United States. You're going to see protests from all over the world. So when you walk into the space, you'll see these mirrors, and they'll ask, who like you? And you'll have different adjectives that you can choose from to say who like you is threatened around the world. And what happens is once you choose an adjective, there's a person that comes and talks to you in this mirror. And based on the adjective that you chose, that's gonna be your experience if you were to go to their country. And so we use that to bring the connection to you so that you understand that these issues are very real. And 
it's up to us to make sure that we can change how these rights are viewed. You'll also be introduced to some defenders of human rights, like Nelson Mandela, Dr. King again, and Gandhi. You're also going to see some of the offenders of human rights, like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot, and Uganda's Idi Amin. And in this space, we want you to understand that these groups of people either helped or harmed large groups of people. And when you understand that and then see in the middle of the space, modern day human rights defenders, you'll see that human rights and activism doesn't look a certain way. And so it doesn't matter if you don't have the very best in clothing or you're not all clean cut. Are you willing to make a change? And are you willing to take a stand? Then that's what really matters. But no matter what you take away from the Center for Civil and Human Rights, we hope that you're inspired to act and that you take the protection of every human's rights personally.
Mama, I'm going to do this for you today. And I will trust in you with all of my heart. Hey, with all of my heart. Yes, I will.
have places to help you. Don't worry, we can take you and your son to a safe haven. Please. You understand, this thing is supposed to happen to me, I'm a man. You are not alone, we have support groups that can help you. Domestic violence, domestic violence. National Association of Black Defenders Incorporated. A movement, a movement, a nonviolent movement for social change. This is a national movement for social change. Build a coalition of people so we can have some direction in the midst of what's going on. We need more of a sense of direction in place have to understand the issues in order to understand the mindset. In order for us to bring back justice, we have to understand justice ourselves. The enemy might have changed his tricks, but we have to use the same strategies that we were used in the 1960s. Infiltrate the nation. You can rebuild this nation with love. Dr. Michael McCorvey, Sr., President of National Association of Black Defenders. Peace on the left, justice on the right. Let's do this another way. Let's vote. Educate yourselves. We will hit them at the polls. Let's do this peacefully. George would not want people to be violent. No justice, no peace. Prosecute the police. Keep my brother's name ringing. George Floyd, stop looting. Don't stop protesting. Terrence Floyd, the brother of George Floyd. Though I'm gone, I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you truly believe. Get out there and push. Stand up. Speak out. Get in the way. The same that my generation got in the way. Get in trouble. Good trouble. Necessarily trouble. If you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, just have a moral obligation to do something about it. My dear friend, your vote is precious, all the most sacred. It is the most powerful nonviolent tool we have to create a more perfect union. The Honorable John Lewis, the National Association of Black Defenders Incorporated, get involved. Find out about it, their resources, their vision, and their target issues. Their board members, quotes and excerpts, and excerpts from news, public health resources, criminal justice and prison reform, the gallery of pictures of their involvement. Get involved. Contact them. Contact the National Association of Black Defenders Incorporated. This is a public service message from House Superdoctor Gospel Blog Talk Radio from 231 6th Avenue, Beatrice, Alabama. House of Black and Gospel, Black Men United, UNO. Stop killing each other. 
understand that there are things out there that we never learned in law school. We'll never learn in one of these trainings. That we have to go out and experience for ourselves. And it will make you a better prosecutor, it will make you happier at the end of the day. It's not going to make you unbiased, but at least it's going to give you more life experience so when that does rise up, you'll be able to combat it with a little bit of the life experience that you've had. Julian's mom is frightened for his future. Julian had to wear a restrictive ankle bracelet, which makes it practically impossible for him to get a job. But the courts will only remove the ankle bracelet when Julian gets a job. He's trapped in an inhumane cycle that perpetuates his criminalization. It's almost impossible to get out. Prison is a supply problem. If they don't have the supply, they can't run their business. And they have no way no way of actually taking people from the street and putting them in the building. It requires the police, it requires prosecutors, it requires judges, and it requires probation officers. The police, prosecutors, judges, and probation officers don't make a dime off of prisons. We have no incentive to send people to prison. The reason that we do is that that's the tool that we were told will make us safer and make people better, but we don't profit off of sending people to prison. And so if we can change what happens down here, police should be trying to reduce crime in their neighborhoods. Prosecutors should be trying to improve public safety in their neighborhoods using data and science that we know works. Probation officers should not be probation officers, they should be probation liaisons. They should be helping people stay out of, out of jail. Probation is another reason why so many people are in jail. Probation officers used to be like social workers, helping inmates make the transition to life on the outside. But over the last 20 years, they've become more like law enforcement officers. Mass incarceration, sure, it's a result of the war on drugs and sentencing laws. Um, but it's really, especially in the jail system, it is probation violations. There are so many people sitting in jail for probation violations, which a lot of the time are not new crimes. So when you go on probation, you have general rules that you have to follow. Let us know where you live. Let us know what your phone number is so we can contact you. Get employment. Get housing. None of those things, if I don't do them, are crimes. If I choose to not have a job, that's not a crime. If I choose to hang out with my friends, that's not a crime. If I choose uh, not to get an education or to, um, you know, smoke weed, those aren't crimes. And yet. As a prosecutor and as a probation officer, if you do those things while you're on probation, I can send you to jail. And that's, that's a uh, dirty little secret that we don't talk about is how that functions. 76% of prisoners who are released are rearrested within five years, many for probation violations. Another thing we don't talk about is that you, as, as a person on probation, you pay the, the government to be supervised. So it's... It was $65 a month when I was a prosecutor. I think it's up to 90 at this point. But when you're a young black male who has no employment opportunities and you have kids and you have no education and you're caught selling drugs to make money, you go through all of this stuff, we make it harder for you to get a job, harder for you to get a house, harder for you to get any financial aid, harder for you to get services. And then you have to pay for that 
and so what what do you think is going to happen like how how did we when we created the system think this will be a good way to keep people from committing crime if americans knew what was happening in prisons and jails with their tax money they would demand change how many of you know someone who's been in jail everybody wait a minute you've been in jail yep it's inevitable to end up here. You feel like you're never out. If the jails were filled with white kids from the suburbs, and then they were making those white kids work for no money, how long do you think that operation would be allowed to last? I'm pretty sure someone's making money off it. The criminal justice system in this country's only real function is controlling poor people. When I went away as a kid, it taught me nothing. It made me resent the system as a whole. American Jail, a CNN film, premieres Sunday night at 8 on CNN. The five or are a major injustice. Take a look. In my hometown of Eastern Pennsylvania, nothing stood taller than the jail on the hill. Every family had been touched by it. We all had tales of broken men in and out of lockup. I just assumed I would end up there too. How many of you know someone who's been in jail?
I always drove the getaway car. My best friend Tommy rode shotgun. We were young and smart, rushing fast down roads leading us closer and closer to that ominous jail on a hill. Then I read James Baldwin, and I discovered that it didn't have to be that way. Baldwin's fiery words gave me courage to dream. I applied to college. I left Easton for freedom. Tommy stayed, spending his whole adult life going in and out of jail. When I heard Tommy committed suicide, I decided to try to understand his journey through the prison system to uncover the whole truth about the all-consuming, all-powerful, all-American jail. The prodigal son, I climbed into my car and headed home. It felt right that I was not running away, that for the first time I was driving full speed towards the jailhouse on the hill. And the first day I moved to this um, to this house, I was standing on the corner, and the paper boy walked by and called me a nigger. Was just, I think it was the first time someone called me a nigger. And his mother said, um, "Don't do that because those people burn our house down." Like so many determined black women without resources, my mother cleaned the homes of well-to-do white women. She raised me with no help from my father, who had disowned us. I never felt I belonged. I wanted something more than what I could see. I wanted to be somewhere far away from that jail on a hill. Community college was the first step. Then I got a scholarship to study journalism at NYU. The stories I reported propelled me to become an independent filmmaker. Hello. Look at your hair. I know. Looks I good. Know. Thank you. <laughs> How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Back when Tommy and I were hanging out, Susie was never far away. Tommy and his older sister were inseparable. She looked after him, protected him. She was devastated when he took his own life on his 52nd birthday. He's missed every day, because that was my first phone call of the day. He would talk to me really? every morning, every morning. Wow. He talked to me when he was getting Jerica ready for school. He talked to me on the way to take her to the bus stop. So where is, where is Tommy? He's over here. Was he depressed? He was, yeah, he had he had bouts with depression. Um, he also had bouts with the Eastern police. With Tommy? Yeah. He would drink and somebody would call the cops because he would, when he drank, he'd get laughing. Right. 
Okay, that's drunken disorder. The cops would come, they spray him with mace and, and handcuff him and all this, so now he's resisting whatever they're trying to do. So they took him and put him in the tank. And they kept him there one time, I forget, was he in there for a year, two years, a year and a half? What? For nothing. For nothing. They didn't charge him with anything? They just held him for a year and a half? Drunken disorderly. That's what he was in there for. And the one time the police picked him up and held him in the thing overnight, um, and we went over there right away. They said, oh, he's fine, he's sleeping it off. When he wakes up, we'll let him go. Well, that night they had him stripped him down butt naked and, and hit him with something. And when they let him go, he was all bruised up. It must do a job on your sort of psychological, psychological state, state of mind. Yes, it does. In and out of prison so many times. Tommy's daughter Jerica lived with him. Every day he got Jerica ready for school. He cooked all her meals. Jerica was 15 years old when her father committed suicide. Now, with Tommy gone, Jerica struggles to find a reason to go on. It was on his birthday. I was coming from Philly. So I went upstairs to change my shoes, and my friend ran out screaming. And I go outside, and I'm like, what happened? She was like, it's your dad, it's your dad. And I'm like, what? Like, did he scare you? And I was laughing. She was like, no, Jerk, he's dead. What was that like? I must that You can't get over that. No. I was hospitalized, like, three times. Like, I just, like, blacked out. That's what traumatized me, I think. It just didn't make sense. It was like, I just talked to him. He was just telling me what, what he's going to cook when I get home. And to see my dad on his birthday alone, when he helped everybody, he died alone by himself. So it was just like that. It was just, everything was gone. I got his tattoo on my arm. So I feel like he's still, like, kind of still with me. Like, he's still there. I still talk to myself, talking to him. Like, when I go to church, I feel like I'm talking to him sometimes. Of all my friends growing up, Tommy had the most discipline. He wasn't a thug. It didn't follow that he'd be the one who ended up in so much trouble. But that's the cruel catch of the system. It only takes one time. And the more Tommy went to jail, the more he started acting like a thug. Tommy hung out in the West Ward of Easton. The West Ward is home to the poor and black of Easton. Above the West Ward is the Juvenile Detention Center. And above that, at the very top of the hill, is the jail. A beautiful medieval castle, the bottomless receptacle for a pipeline carrying black bodies from the West Ward to the juvenile detention center, straight into the jail on the hill. Yeah. You can hear 
a housing out at not too far away getting a little rowdy. What's going on? Uh, they're just, there's a few individuals that are maybe, maybe having a verbal altercation right now. We have a few officers want to go check it out right now and see what's going on, you know. So if anything would happen to go, you know, if we happen to have a fight or anything, just make sure you step to the side. Although I knew the statistics, seeing so many black men in cages made me furious. So when did you get in? Um, I just got in today. Today. Um, but I'm obviously familiar with the system and how sometimes corrupt it can be or, you know, how messed up, you know, it can be for something so small to be something so big and something so long-lasting, you know. Tell me about it. Um, well, I mean, it just seems like everything that you do, like, no matter if you're a good guy, you know, it's, it's inevitable to end up here. It's been, you know, such a long process, you know, just coming in and out and just being part of the system now. It's just like you feel like you're, you're never out, you know? Two years ago, Corday got a DUI. He spent five months in jail for driving under the influence. Then, had to pay exorbitant court and jail fees. He missed one payment. Then seven police officers broke down his door and arrested him. This DUI process has been for me, it's been two years. So this, this is, you can be a good person, you know, and it only takes one mistake for you to be in the system. And once you're in, you're in. Corday wants to leave and get a fresh start elsewhere, but he's trapped in Easton because of an unending procession of probation and court appearances. I have an eight-month-old son, and I have a four-year-old who, um, whose father committed suicide, God forbid, and I've been just taking out of my own wing and just being a father and a mentor to him, you know, showing him the rights and wrong and how to, you know, grow up, you know, with positive positivity, you know, being an optimist, you know, taking the worst situation and turning it around into something good, you know. And for me personally, like, it also helps me, you know, like, it motivates me to be a better person because I want to be truthful to who I am and what I'm still telling him. So I don't want to sell him something I don't believe in. I could have easily ended up yeah. on the, caught in, in a system yeah. like, Seriously. you know, like one in every three black men in America. Man, it's obviously quiet right now because I understand exactly what you're saying. And that sucks to, you know, to, for it to be like that. But, I mean, it's the world we live in. And uh, you would think after years and years of, you know, integration and, you know, being equal to, you know, the next guy or the guy next to you, it would change, but it doesn't. Yeah. No. Yeah. Not at all. Corday's story is a lot like Tommy's. I know it would have been my story, too, if I hadn't got out of Easton. I got out, but my friends didn't. Growing up, I was very aware of being different. Long before I admitted the truth to myself, I bore the shame of homophobic bullying. I was called faggot in school all the time. My grandfather called me a sissy. As young as I was, I always knew no one in Easton would ever accept this thing about me. My safety, 
My very survival depended on how well I could hide my homosexuality from everyone, even Tommy. When I packed up and left home, it was in search of other people like me. In the 1980s, every closeted kid in every small town in America knew that gay people lived and breathed in the openly queer pulse of New York City. When I left Easton, I never looked back. The irony is, homosexuality may have saved my life. Church was always a big part of our life growing up. Tommy played the drums in the band and I sang in the choir. My biological father was a deacon from another church. When my mother and father met, they were both married to other people. They had an affair. My father chose not to acknowledge me as his son. I felt abandoned by him. After my mother left Easton, I had no reason to go back. Being there brings back all the demons I thought I left behind. Hi. Good to see you. I'm happy that you came back to see everybody. Yes. I have a nephew who's been incarcerated. Uh, he's been in for, he's going to be in for 13 years. You're a correctional officer. Wow. So where were you? Yeah. Yeah. After church, I had lunch with Tommy's family. How many of you know someone who's been in jail? Everybody. <laughs> Wait a minute. You've been in jail? Yes. In the county jail? Lehigh County. Yes. Wow. Center, where they center at? Mass incarceration has become an accepted part of life for poor people and black people in America. It is so entrenched in our nation's identity that we take it for granted and accept it as the norm. Its roots are buried deep in our troubled history. When slavery was abolished in America in 1865, the United States Congress created the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which essentially redefined the parameters of slavery. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist in the United States. This clause has allowed Americans to continue to enslave black people and poor people for over 150 years. Today, America has the highest incarceration rate in the world. Our jails and our prisons are mostly filled with poor people and people of color. I needed to see how this inhumane system works. Hey, Paul. Roger. Hi, Roger. How are you? All right. Let me see. So nice to meet you. <laughs> I need to show you around. Paul Wright, one of the most important advocates for prison reform, has himself served time in prison. I spent 17 years in prison myself. Um, 
I've known thousands of people over the years that have been in prison, and I've yet to see to hear a single person say, you know what, prison was really good for me, and, you know, I fared very well. You spent 17 years incarcerated? I did. And I was really surprised when I went to prison at basically the brutalization, dehumanization that prisoners are subjected to. And one of the things I thought about then in 1990, which 27 years later I still believe is that if Americans knew what was happening in prisons and jails with their tax money and in their name, they would demand reform and they would demand change. The United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world. Since the 1980s, the rate has skyrocketed. How did we get to this point? You know, you get to mass incarceration not because of rising crime levels or crimes that people are committing, but also by criminalizing more and more behavior and more and more conduct. So, okay, why is that? So it took the United States from 1776 to 1990 to lock up its first million people. Then the prison population doubled between 1990 and 2000. So it took us 10 years to lock up our second million. We have widening gaps of inequality in this country. And I view mass incarceration as a tool of social control. What are they controlling? Poor people. I mean, the criminal justice system in this country is literally, its only real function is containing and controlling poor people. What's the threat of poor people? Social change and political change. Poor men, poor men of color in particular are the foot soldiers of revolution and change in the world. And in this country, they're viewed as a threat. Our current incarceration crisis has its ugly roots in the unrest of the 60s and 70s. John Ehrlichman, counsel and assistant to President Richard Nixon, later admitted that the Nixon White House had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against war or black, but by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. And so, that's what they did. That is the continuation of the deprivation and oppression that poor black people have suffered in this country for the last 500 years. Under President Barack Obama's administration, with bipartisan support, we had just begun to address the problem of the disproportionate number of poor and black people behind bars. The numbers were starting to decline, and Obama's Attorney General, Eric Holder, made it his mission to reduce prison population. I will restore law and order to our country. But today there's a new president in the White House, and he has a very different idea in mind. And when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in, rough. I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand on. Like, don't hit their head and they've just killed somebody, don't hit their head. I said, you can take the hand away, okay? Donald Trump has decided that mass incarceration is a good thing and we need to increase the number of people in prison and increase prison sentences and turn back the clock on prison reform. Many in his own Republican Party disagree with him, but his Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, a relic of the racially segregated Jim Crow era from the South, is leading the charge to lock him up 
and throw away the key. Today I am announcing that I sent a memo to each of our United States attorneys last night establishing a charging and sentencing policy for this Department of Justice. But it is important to note that unlike previous charging memoranda, I have given our prosecutors discretion to avoid sentences that would result in an injustice. This is a key part of Sessions has told federal prosecutors to ask for the most serious charges and harshest sentences against defendants. You know, opponents of mandatory minimums or, or tough sentencing say that it disproportionately affects minority communities. But what they don't mention is that minority communities are the ones most disproportionately impacted by drug traffickers targeting those communities and the crime in those communities. Those, they're the victims, ultimately, and that's what we're trying to stop. Tough on crime ultimately benefits the communities that is victimized by crime the most. What about reducing prison populations? Is that a, an issue? As I know that was for Holder. Our, I think our issue is reducing crime. I don't think we're, we're trying to get to a result uh, beyond that. I think that making sure that families throughout America are safe from the most violent and dangerous criminals, that is our number one priority and that's what we're focused on. What the Department of Justice fails to acknowledge is that studies have shown that prosecutors are 75% more likely to charge black defendants with offenses that carry mandatory minimums. Though minority communities may be targeted, this does not justify the fact that following conviction, black defendants receive longer sentences for similar crimes. It makes me so angry that he chooses not to acknowledge that our criminal justice system overlooks the crime in white suburban communities. Instead, he chooses to only highlight crimes in communities of color. These racially informed micro and macro aggressions only proves that the prison system is biased against minorities and even more biased against poor communities of color. They're, they're not paying attention. They don't care because it's happening to somebody else. And often that person is a different skin color or ethnicity than they are. And they just think they did something wrong. All bets are off. But I also think if you talk to people and say, should you be paying for all your life for one disorderly conduct? Or, you know, should you be in jail for off and on for several years for writing one bad check or not returning a blockbuster movie? Nobody believes that. What's the motivation to keep the numbers up? You know, here's the thing. There's not one person who controls those numbers, right? The, the dis the path to jail is made up of decisions by lots of different people, most of the time not in coordination with each other. So suddenly, the jail is full. The bureaucracy of mass incarceration has grown into a monster of many heads. Locking up large numbers of people began as a way to control black activists during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. In the 1980s, Black behaviors were criminalized as the war on drugs focused on crack. By the 1990s, with widespread racist fear of super predators, there were so many people incarcerated that prisons became an industry. 
Now, that industry has become so lucrative, so far-reaching, that the moral issue is complicated by the financial issue. After the shooting of Michael Brown by a police officer in Ferguson, the U.S. Justice Department investigated. They found that the local government was using unnecessary fees and fines in order to extract large amounts of money from poor and black people. This investigation found a community where local authorities consistently approached law enforcement not as a means for protecting public safety, but as a way to generate revenue. It's not just Ferguson. These are the same kinds of court fees that got Corday thrown back in jail in Easton. I've met many others who are in jail simply because they cannot afford to get out. This modern-day practice of punishing people for being poor is reminiscent of the inhumane debtor prisons of the past. What are you all, what can I ask what you're all in here for? Um, well, I'm, I'm in for DUI, my third, and I'm getting out in five days, but I've served a year, whole year. Um, this time it's for a second offense DUI. How about you? I'm here because I owe $545 to domestic. The like, child support? My case was being closed, but I couldn't. I lost my job before I could pay the last payment, and I'm here for six months now. It's just backwards. It's Crooked County, I think. <laughs> Crooked County? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Northampton is all about their money. You owe them $5, you better give them their $5. Mm-hmm. And there's no help. There's no. no help. I mean, how is she supposed to pay child support yeah. in jail? Yeah. Makes no sense. And the, the, re- the whole reason why I was on child support is because I, I went to go get clean. I was a heroin addict. I was working. Um, my living situation got messed up. I got kicked out. I had to quit my job. And now here I am. <laughs> Over $545 on a case that's going to be closed as soon as I leave here. And if you don't get the proper help, the recidivism rate is just, it's it skyrockets, you know? Everybody is in and out, in and out, in and out. I think they need to offer more treatment. Like, a lot of the treatment centers around here are closing, um, and I just think that's a terrible injustice to people because you're not going to get better sitting in a bunk in a cell. You yeah, have to it's, work it's, through everything. It's a vicious cycle. It's a cruel cycle that often supplements the budgets of local governments as they extract unnecessary fees from people who can't afford to pay. The cost of running the criminal justice system is also enormous for the rest of us. State governments pour money into it, spending an average of 5% of their local budgets on correctional institutions. The federal government spends a whopping total of $265 billion a year, essentially paid for by taxpayers. Who is profiting from the billions of dollars being spent, and where does all that money go? One answer I hear a lot, private prisons. But the truth isn't what you might think. What is the percentage of private prisons in America? It's pretty small. I mean, basically, they're kind of stagnant at around 6% of the total American prison population. But I think one of the things, too, is I think this is confusing the symptom with the disease. And I think the private prisons are the symptom. Mass incarceration is the disease. Only the government drives mass incarceration. And the private prisons are just, you know, they're just feeding off the process, you know, profiting off the process, but they're not driving it. So who is driving it? Taxpayers spend $265 billion a year on the criminal justice system. 
And still the question remains, where does all that money go? Tell me what you do and where we are. So I'm the executive director of the American Jail Association, the only organization uh, worldwide that we're aware of that focuses exclusively on the men and women who operate and work in our nation's jails. Right now we're on the show floor of our conference. This is where vendors showcase their products and services that are used in jails. Everything from clothing and food to medicine to security systems. If you run a jail, it's like running a city. Tell me about these chairs. Yeah, so one of, one of the manufacturers, Norix, uh, produces furniture for, for jails, for inmates. Uh, furniture like this, uh, made of plastic, so... Uh, you can wash it down. It can be easily maintained. Uh, no sharp edges, no way to take something apart and, and, and make a weapon out of it. Um, it's a comfortable, comfortable environment for, for an inmate. Um, we want to keep inmates comfortable. That's, that's not what I thought. The private company Norix is just one of many companies that profit from correctional institutions. Last year, their revenue was an estimated $22 million, much of it from this industry. I'm starting to see why this $265 billion a year industry makes it so hard to change the system. Basically, the United States has done a good job of creating a self-perpetuating prisoner machine. And one thing to look at is um, their jobs depend on mass incarceration. And I think it was Sinclair Lewis that said it's hard to explain something to a man when his paycheck depends on him not understanding. To be fair, it's not just private companies. Yearly, $265 billion of our taxpayer money is spent keeping public prisons and jails running. Wages for correction employees alone are $38 billion a year. Healthcare costs are $12.3 billion. And $2 billion is spent on food. As it is, with all profiteering factions of any bureaucracy, no one wants to lose their piece of the pie. When they call it a prison industrial complex, it really is. I, I hate that term. You hate that term, right? Why do you hate that term? Because don't look at it that way. I mean, we're not ma manufacturing automobiles. Um, we're not, uh, no one profits from it. They also have uh, shareholders. We're not trading on Wall Street. The company is some of them. The companies that are part of all of them. $265 billion a year in taxpayer spending means a sure profit for companies like Securus, who charge hiked up fees for prisoners to use phones to call their loved ones.
for individual families, it's not uncommon for them to pay upwards of $500 on average a month. But you're talking about the most economically vulnerable families in our society. So they are being weighted with the burden not only of a loved one who might have been the primary breadwinner. Now that breadwinner is gone, and now that family is being overly taxed. Okay, we're talking about a phone call. We're talking about a phone call. The fees that inmates pay for everyday services are several times what we pay outside of prison. And companies like Securus continue to see their profits rise at the expense of disproportionately poor and black inmates. There are a number of companies that profit from the poor that end up getting locked up. Whether it be the telephone companies that profit from usurious telephone rates, uh, the companies that uh, manage financial flows to and from uh, people in prison and their families, uh, food service companies. There's a lot of money to be made in this industry. I'm also... Um, Complicit. Yeah. Yes. In this particular account, uh, you have three mutual funds, and we can look online, see what those mutual funds are invested in, and see if they are involved in some way profiting from the prison system. So, I'm looking for Corrections Corp of America, and there it is. Yeah, it seems crazy, doesn't it? It's so mind-boggling. Yeah. It's very warped. It may be time to tell your financial advisor that there are certain issues that you'd rather not be involved in. Yeah. And to think that I'm an investor in that unknowingly is even yeah. more disturbing for me. Because I, I keep going to people and saying, is this some giant conspiracy? Is it? And they're like, no, it's like everyone, it's just the way things are done. So from the prosecutors to the DAs to the judges to the magistrates, everyone to the, to the CEOs to the, they're just all part of a system that works. It's an industry. Yes, although if you look back, you know, 10 or 20 years ago or, or longer, I think it was almost, uh, they knew kind of how it was going to end up, right? And they, they didn't scale that back. I think there were concerted efforts to not do anything about what was Why do you think that is? Institutional structural racism. someone is convicted and moves from jail to federal or state prison, the government now has legal access to them as a workforce. These prisoners work for almost nothing, making road signs or mattresses or just about anything the government decides. The Eastern Correctional Facility is one of the oldest prisons in New York. Here, many of the prisoners are enrolled in a prison labor program where the inmates work for far below minimum wage. Some people see these programs as a good thing, training inmates for skills they can use when they're released, while others see it as modern-day slavery. Many of your speed limit signs, your stop signs, your no-U-turn signs, all the road signs you're seeing as you, as you drive down the road in, in, uh, on any typical journey. They make many of them right here. So what do they get paid? Uh, the, the pay rate ranges from about 15 cents an hour up to 65 cents an hour. What's the sort of motivation for not paying them minimum wage? Well, uh, 
wage and in, 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 uh, inmate pay rate is set by regulation. But you have to understand, a minimum wage employee in the community, uh, that's assuming that they're meeting all the financial demands of perhaps maintaining a household, a family, uh, and all the attendant fiscal responsibilities there. Purchasing of groceries, the housing costs, uh, transportation costs, health care costs. For an inmate who's uh, incarcerated in a correctional facility, those costs uh, are not realized by the inmate. For time spent within the penal system, inmates will accumulate fees averaging $13,600. Their families suffer huge financial losses in lost wages. By the age of 48, a former inmate will have earned $179,000 less than someone who has never been incarcerated. Every time that prisoners have gone to court um, seeking to be paid for their labor, seeking to be compensated um, for their labor, the court's response is, you're slaves, you're slaves of the state. That's, those are the exact words of court after court after court for the last 120 years. Prisoners are slaves of the state, and as such, they're not entitled to any compensation at all. I read in prison legal news that companies like Victoria's Secret, Whole Foods, and Starbucks have used prison labor. Paul Wright exposed those stories. What percentage of prison labor is corporate in America? Uh, it's actually pretty small. I mean, and I think that, um, you know, this may be bad for your story, but, but the reality is that there's, at any given time, there's around five to 6,000 prisoners employed by uh, the private sector in this country, which you figure out of a workforce of, what, 200 million people or 180 million people, that's not huge. But the truth is, most prisoners aren't working for private companies. They work for the government. Cheap labor keeps the prison system running. So what are they doing? Um, they're doing primarily what prisoners do is they run the prisons. So anything that prisoners, anything that has to get done in a prison, unless it's security related, usually prisoners are doing it. So um, they're doing plumbing, they're doing maintenance, they're they're doing um, custodial and janitor services, cleaning. Um, they're cooking food. They're serving food. Literally anything you can think of that is needed to run a prison, prisoners do. So the prison saves a fortune by making the prisoners run the prison? Millions. Mil tens of millions, yeah. They saved tens of millions. There is a GAO report in 1993 that said it would cost prisons hundreds of millions of dollars more each year to pay prisoners minimum wage for the work that they did. So prisons are saving hundreds of millions of dollars by employing prisoners. And when, when we crunched the numbers, we found that the median wage in state prisons was 20 cents an hour. And the median wage in federal prisons was 31 cents an hour. And in a number of states, they don't pay anything at all. Um, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. In Texas, Georgia, Arkansas, and Alabama, prisoners are not paid for their work at all. And in some places, they're required to work under threat of disciplinary action. If they say, no, I'm not going to work, they can write you up for that. They can send you to solitary for that. That's, that's dumbass slavery. To, to work for free? Yeah. And then they can, and they can put you in solitary if you don't yeah. work or write you up for not working? Yeah. Why is that not slavery? In the prison labor debate, we rarely hear from inmates. 